0: welcome to the stock of the town podcast this is karen pendleton with my husband john and we are with pendleton's country market we live in the kansas river valley just outside of lawrence kansas and we've been farming together for over 40 years and through this podcast we want to share with you about our farm and our community our farm currently specializes in growing vegetables cut flowers and spring bedding plants
1: A little bit of background on the two of us, we actually both grew up on farms. We are living on the farm that I grew up on, just a little bit east of Lawrence, Kansas, in northeast Kansas. Quite involved in 4-H activities, Um, even though we had a cattle feedlot, livestock was not necessarily uh, my busiest activity with 4-H, but I enjoyed photography and, and uh, public speaking and, and uh, leadership and a lot of other things that, that uh, 4-H gave me, and uh, enjoyed marching band and all sorts of musical instruments, uh, band activities at uh, Lawrence High School and then at Kansas State University.
0: We were both involved in band all through high school, and that's music has been very important to both of us. I actually grew up in a little bitty town in southeast Kansas by the name of Pickway. Pickway, Kansas has a population of 72, and uh, I had 15 kids in my class growing up, so it was a very small town, and then I went to Iola for high school, the big city. We met at Kansas State University, like John said. He majored in animal science, and uh, as of today, we have 35 chickens and three cats on the farm. So there's these animal science. There's
1: the extent of of our animal population.
0: (laughs) And I have a degree in journalism, of which I used for a few years out of college, but uh, now actually use all the time because of Facebook and newsletters that we're writing and that sort of thing. But I'm not working off the farm in a journalistic profession.
1: We have three kids. We have two daughters and a son that uh, that we raised here on the farm. None of them have decided to come back to the farm, and that'll be uh, future topics. We are okay with that, and uh, our kids will be future topics on this podcast. Well, and
0: I think we agree, bringing kids up on the farm is probably one of the the best things there is the the opportunities that they have on the farm. So when we do get our kids in here for the podcast it'll be interesting to see what they say as if they think it's uh, was as great as we did.
1: Having the grandkids not growing up on the farm might be the only disappointment we have but that's one of the reasons that Karen and I continue to try and uh, keep Pendleton's Country Market going so that the grandkids do have a place to uh, come to and to visit and to get the uh, the agricultural experience.
0: Right now, the biggest agricultural experience that they want is to uh, have us give them rides on, in the gator. And uh, we take the gator all over the place, and they think that's a whole lot of fun.
1: We've got seven grandsons at this point and and at this recording the oldest one is 8 years old so you can imagine getting uh getting them together they two of the three families uh live here in Douglas County near Lawrence and it's a lot of fun to get them together.
0: People keep telling us oh what f- what uh, good help we must have on the farm and I think in a few years that will be possible if they they want to come help us but as of right now it's more of Just running around after them and keeping them alive when they're here at the farm.
1: (laughs) Keep them from getting hurt. How
0: how did we do it when our kids were that age? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Both of our families have history in the grocery business, which I think is fairly common for that generation, like two generations ago. John's great-great-grandfather was Theodore Poehler, who at one point was the mayor of Lawrence, Kansas, and he had a wholesale grocery business in town. And that was in the late 1800s, early 1900s.
1: My grandfather and great-grandfather both owned and ran the canning factory here in Lawrence. And it, it
0: was called the Caw n- Valley Cannery. Caw
1: Valley Cannery, yeah. It, it, uh, for people who are familiar with Lawrence history, it eventually became uh, Stokely Van Camps. and And they actually continued to do pork and beans until gosh, what was it, early 90s, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was lucky enough that my dad was actually able to give me a quick little tour of the plant. And and I was able to hear some of his memories of being in the the canning factory when, when he was a kid. But uh, it's like lots of businesses that kind of had its heyday. and And after the war, it was very difficult to run a canning factory that was not very uh, knew it was old equipment not very efficient and and uh, ran its course and so it it actually uh, the family sold it to Stokely Van Camp and and uh, they continued to run it for a while and and then it became not efficient enough for even uh, them a big corporation to continue run it. Then
0: your other grandfather your mother's father also ran a grocery store in Winfield Kansas.
1: Yes, and you had relatives in Pickway, too, (laughs) that had grocery stores.
0: My great-grandfather and my grandmother's family were all involved with a grocery store in Pickway. And then my mother's father, my grandfather on her side, ran a wholesale business that supplied groceries and grocery stores with items from
1: their wholesale groceries. And it's still in business.
0: It's still in business and uh, up in Seneca, Kansas.
1: When I thought about coming back to the farm, my dad set me down and he said, there's plenty of room for you, but I want to make sure that you understand if you don't like this as much as I do, I would just assume you not be here. My dad was around agriculture. He was not a farmer growing up, but he became a farmer. He was a first generation farmer. So a lot of times I tell people that One of the best things that he ever gave me was the fact that he was not a multi-generational farmer. I didn't grow up on a century farm. That makes me a second-generation farmer. We grew corn, soybeans. We had a cattle feedlot when I was a youngster. One of the great things that that gave me about my dad being a first-generation farmer was the fact that there was no pressure on me from generations of Pendleton's kind of looking down from the heavens and saying, oh, my gosh, we got to keep the farm going with my dad being a first generation farmer that kind of reduced a lot of the pressure. If, if we if we quit farming today, I'm OK. And uh, uh, I, but I have lots and lots of friends across the Midwest that are multi-generation farms are from century farms or We also have a lot of friends that aren't on the farm, but they own the multi-generational farm back in Iowa or wherever. And there's a lot of guilt of, oh my gosh, we got to keep the farm running. No pressure on me. But one of the best things that my dad gave me also was the fact that he was willing to change our operation. When I was young, we were corn soybeans we had a cattle feedlot at its height we'd have maybe 500 head of cattle a year that was pretty good sized back in the 60s and 70s not so much today but uh, uh, we we grew corn for silage we grew corn for high moisture corn all for uh, livestock feed and then we grew soybeans wheat little bit of hay, sometimes for cash crops to um, uh, get the farm through uh, the rest of the year. And so that was kind of good Good words of advice. Uh, um, graduated in 1979. Karen and I were married in 1980. And 79 was kind of an interesting. It was one of the best years we had ever had. Perfect weather for crops to grow. Prices were high. Things were just absolutely phenomenal. An old farmer told me that year, remember this because you're not going to get very many years like that. Lo and behold, (laughs) early 80s hit and a lot of people remember the beginning of the ag crisis and it certainly was.
0: What I remember from 1980, that summer we had over 20 or 21 days over 100 degrees and it was just hot and hotter that year. And then it didn't rain much, so there was a drought, and so much of the corn in the area just burnt up. And I remember we were irrigating corn at the time, and uh, John was using flood irrigation, which anybody who's used flood irrigation knows how much work that is. And he was so proud because his corn looked so good. It was nice and green. The cobs were 16, 17 inches long. They were just huge cobs. And, um, but we really hadn't pulled the, well, the husk back. A,
1: a good neighbor said, how's your corn look? And I said, oh my gosh, it looks fantastic. No, have you looked at it? How does the corn look? Well, <laughs> he was right. I actually got out of the pickup truck, walked into the field, pulled some husks back, and there would be five or six kernels per ear. And each kernel was about the size of a nickel, if not maybe as big as a a quarter. They were huge because they, they didn't have the other corn to keep them in place. And what had happened was it was so hot, the pollen on the tassels died, burnt, before they hit the silks of the corn. So even though it was irrigated and the corn looked fantastic... There was actually no corn. Since we were in the livestock industry, we were able to go ahead and harvest that all for silage, and and uh, it it made for good uh, cattle feed. Still,
0: so John mentioned that that was the start of the the farm crisis or the ag crisis in the late seventies. Crops were so good, and and the bankers were telling farmers, you know, uh, plant more, uh, plant fence row to fence row. They wanted more production, and and if you needed to buy your neighbor's farm to, to get more land to farm, go ahead and do that. And they were really pushing people to take loans to to expand their farming operations.
1: And certainly the farms that, that got all the notoriety in, in national magazines and, and surveys, these were the farms that had really expanded quickly. Uh, they were farming more and more acres. They were Borrowing, again, all the ground that was close to them and and using the home place as collateral. The early 80s, again, was tough because uh, interest rates hit 21% and then all of a sudden land prices started to decline and people didn't have enough equity in uh, the assets that they had to keep up with the, uh, the, the loans that they had on the ground. And
0: even though we hadn't bought land at that time, we weren't buying land, we were in the cattle business and we would buy calves and and uh, we were paying that 21% interest on loans to buy the calves and then hoping we were able to make that back when we, we sold them. At that same time, people had discovered cholesterol and cholesterol was trying to kill us all. And so there was a lot of negativity about raising beef, and uh, so that that was tough. Trying to make it, you know, the the stress that it put on us to try and get that money back each year was was getting harder and harder.
1: Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. There was worldwide crisis. Um, we had an embargo against sending grain to the Soviet Union. So all of a sudden, um, wheat and, and soybean prices just plummeted because we couldn't, well, there was such a backlog because we couldn't uh, send it to our, uh, even though Soviet Union was not necessarily our best friends, they were a buyer at that point, And we weren't able to, to get the crops off the coast uh, here in the U.S. off to send it to someplace else.
0: Well, with all of that happening, that's when we planted our first half acre of asparagus. At that time, a lot of farms were looking for alternative crops that maybe wouldn't save the farm, but at least help out the farm's income. And our local extension agent, Earl Van Meter, said, well, you like asparagus, why don't you put in a half an acre? And so that's what we did. And, uh, John's dad, this was going to be his retirement project, but uh, after the first day of planting, his arthritis was bothering him so bad, he says, no, uh, this is going to be your project. This is going to be too difficult for me. So that's when we first started getting into asparagus. And it was anybody who was doing something other than corn and soybeans and, and cattle, It was a positive story. Everything was so negative. that It was so sad what was going on If the farm crisis. If you were doing something different, it was a positive story, and the media would pick up on it. And we were very fortunate to just be in the right place at the right time as we started doing alternative crops. Our best marketing came at that time because... We didn't have time to be open all the time on the farm and we didn't have enough asparagus to really be open all the time to sell to people. So we just kept a list of people's names and would call them um, next person's name on the list. We would call them when we had enough asparagus. And so when they would get the call, they could either take asparagus or not. The best thing we did though was that we'd limited them to 10 pounds and they didn't know when their name might come around on that list again, so they always took 10 pounds.
1: That is amazing how people later on said, oh my goodness, I ended up buying asparagus from the grocery store in large quantities and it wasn't any good. (laughs) (laughs) But but they never had a problem of finding enough friends to share it with or to go ahead and freeze it. And so a 10 pound quantity wasn't that bad. It wasn't bad at all.
0: And then after we were selling asparagus, they were coming out and buying about $10 worth of asparagus. And as they handed me a $20 bill to pay for it, they said, well, what else can I buy? And I think we wanted that other half of the $20 bill. So we started looking into other things. And there was a gentleman down the road in Eudora, a town nearby that had been raising hydroponic tomatoes. So John was in discussions with him and uh, bought us a greenhouse and we started raising hydroponic tomatoes.
1: We tore down the greenhouse over in Eudora, moved it three and a half miles down the road. We actually called in all of our friends and uh, uh, some of those friends were young, doctors lawyers uh, attorneys and it, they had the best time in the world doing a little bit of manual labor and you know we were all young we were all friends built the greenhouse back over on our farm and and started growing hydroponic tomatoes and the
0: tomatoes were were wonderful addition to our crops we also raised rhubarb and we put in some peonies at that time because peonies bloom in april and may the same time that the rhubarb was ready the same time the asparagus were ready and the same time that the tomatoes were starting to come on so we were going along pretty good and people saw this greenhouse and they'd say where's your bedding plants well we thought that enough garden centers and hardware stores had and, and grocery stores well,
1: no this was this was before grocery stores and hardware stores had garden centers sitting in their parking lots but surely there's enough already out there in the market to take care of the bedding plant industry but People kept asking, where are your bedding plants?
0: (laughs) So we started raising bedding plants, uh, just a few of them, and we had to put them down the rows in between the tomato plants in the greenhouse because we didn't have room. And we quickly realized we were making more money selling the bedding plants that were in between the rows of the tomatoes than we were the tomatoes. It's funny how people always will spend more on things that they see and want versus the food that they eat sometimes
1: difference between wants and needs. You know, what's the cost of a candy bar compared to, you know, potatoes or onions or something like that. People know what the value is of food, but when it comes to a, a want, they kind of ignore the expense.
0: Well, so those bedding plants were selling pretty good, but there were always a few left at the end of the season. And so we would just plant them out and this would have been in the mid 80s when uh, dried flowers were all the rage so i would plant them out to grow the flowers cut them and hang them for drying and started doing dried flower arrangements and that was a lot of fun and that was a rage for quite a while until about the 1990-95 fresh cut flowers became more popular and what i found was that the fresh flowers were a lot less work because they we could grow them and we could sell them fresh. The dried flowers, we had to cut them, we had to dry them and then arrange them to sell them. So and that's how we got into the flower business.
1: One of the best marketers for what we were doing was a lady well-known, Martha Stewart. She had a wedding flower book and a lot of the flowers that she had in her wedding book were considered kind of uh, grandma type flowers. They weren't the types of flowers that florists were using. They were local and they were regular garden flowers. And that has changed
0: the, the flower scene across the United States. And now you see big promotions for locally grown flowers, American grown flowers, trying to take away the number of miles that flowers are flown in from South America. Been a good marketing tool, but Martha Stewart did really change our business and the cut flower business.
1: So, when we got into the peonies, that helped add another crop that came with the asparagus, the hydroponic tomatoes that came on early, the peonies came on. We were able to harvest them, but a lot of them went into dried flower arrangements and throughout the years all of a sudden we were able to start shifting from dried flowers back to fresh flowers and um, quickly also realized that oh my goodness that's so much less work just making fresh arrangements instead of the dried flower arrangements. There were other farms in the area that jumped into strawberries and uh, another farm got into sweet corn. And so there was a little bit of a movement that just kind of happened in those early 80s. And and we applied for our first sales tax in uh, 1983. So what we're doing now is we're actually celebrating 40 years of of being a real live business with uh, a sales tax number with Pendleton's Country Market.
0: So with this being our 40th year, we decided that a podcast would be a good way to celebrate that. But if you follow us on Facebook, we have uh, been putting flashbacks of the last 40 years. And every Thursday night, we've been putting a new picture from the olden days up for everybody to laugh at and uh, see how we've changed through the years. I hope that you'll be able to join us each week as we give you a glimpse into our days, our farm and our local food landscape.
1: We are both full-time farmers, and we want to tell you all about the joys that we have doing this farming together, and especially as a couple. We want to talk to you about the things that have gone wrong also on the farm. It's not as easy to remember those, but it's, a, it's really important to remember some of the things that didn't go so well, and, and you know, we're happy to kind of share some of those, and then we want to share with you all the reasons that we love this way of life and the
0: longer we do this I have found the less we know so we're not here to tell you how you should be doing this but these are what our experiences are we hope that you would follow us on Facebook and Instagram and uh, check out our website pendletons.com. and of course remember to follow us at the stock of the town as we talk about our farm and our community
1: thank you so much